Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And as you do, I wonder if you have a dog. One of these days we might get a dog. The negotiation has been going on for 20 years. Some people have said I'm persuasive in certain areas, but this is clearly not one of them. But I grew up with a dog, a dog named Mac. It's a pretty cool dog name if you ask me. It's better than Steven. (laughs) He was a tough little thing. Uh, He lived for 18 years and had almost everything wrong with him by the time he finally passed away. He was a stout little Karen Terrier. And not, not a skinny Karen Terrier, but a stout Karen Terrier. But if you asked him, he was as big and as tough as a bull mastiff. He was the type of dog that pushed rocks around the backyard for fun. He killed snakes when they came into the yard. He ran away when his chain broke more times than I can remember because he was rather independent. And he was the dog that would lunge after other dogs five times his size as you walked him through the neighborhood. He was a good dog, a good pet. He was friendly with us, but he had this sort of disposition swagger to him. If, he was the type of dog that if you looked at him, you could just tell that he didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care what you thought about him. He could take you or leave you. He's a tough little guy. But in the end, Mac was harmless. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us to watch out for the dogs. And it's not a warm sentiment. And these people who Paul refers to as dogs are anything but harmless, at least when it comes to your spiritual life. In fact, these people had values that undermined the very essence of our relationship with God, and they were trying to impose those values on all the other Christians. So let's hear about it. Uh, Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, and today we're going to read just three verses, starting at verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those, mutil- those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the glory in, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The section begins with a simple command. Rejoice in the Lord. It has a tone to it, doesn't it? It's upbeat. It's an action that comes with that tone or disposition as well because rejoicing in the Lord is not simply an emotion. It's a disposition of taking joy and then expressing that joy. That's what it means to rejoice. And 
That idea of rejoicing is seen in every chapter in the book of Philippians. As you've heard week over week now into another month of this book, you're hearing it again and again and again. In chapter 1, rejoicing in the Lord occurs for Paul because people are being saved. The gospel is being preached. Faith in Jesus is being exercised and God is forgiving sin. And even though Paul himself is being slandered in the process, he rejoices. This is what he says in verse 118. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether by pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And in chapter 2, he highlights that their identity, your identity, as followers of Jesus, should lead you to follow the example of Jesus in humility, to live as lights in the world without grumbling. Paul is an example of this as well, as his whole life is being spent as a sacrifice for their good. And in the middle of all that, he rejoices. This is what he says in verse 17 of chapter 2. He said, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Moving ahead to chapter 4, we haven't gotten there yet, but you will see that Paul finishes with some encouragements about the greatness of knowing Christ and how he is of infinite worth and value over and above all things in this world and how his whole life is defined by knowing him and how as a result of that, yours can be too and it gives you the ability to stand firm when things are hard. And so he says in chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And here, in the middle of it all, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's such a simple reminder for Christians. But you know what? <laughs> Sometimes we need simple reminders. Because life is hard. And it's easy to be distracted. To rejoice or to take joy in the Lord is the language of the Psalms. It's in the language of the followers of God since the beginning. And more than an emotion, it's a recognition that God is not only the source of our joy, but also the occasion for our joy. That not only does he birth real joy in us because of who he is and what he does, but because we recognize it and experience it, we have occasion for ongoing joy. You know, it's amazing. It is an amazing thing for you to know God. It's amazing. You get to know God. And it is incredibly comforting to be known by God. George Frederick Handel composed the amazing musical The Messiah in approximately three weeks. 
It was apparently done at a time when his eyesight was failing and he was facing the possibility of being imprisoned because of some outstanding bills. Handel, however, kept writing and in the midst of these challenges till his masterpiece was done, which included the majestic Hallelujah Chorus, was completed. Handel later credited the completion of his work to one ingredient, joy. He was quoted as saying that he felt as if his heart would burst with joy as he was hearing it in his mind. Such joy, sure enough, listening to either the work of the entire Messiah or just the Hallelujah Chorus, it brings joy to your heart, to my heart, as we hear it, as we consider it, as it becomes familiar to us. You know, similarly, in the midst of the many challenges that he faced, including chains, imprisonment, and slander, the Apostle Paul, filled with the joy that Christ gives, could say, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. And friends, you can too. May the joy of the Lord fill your heart even today. At the end of verse 1, Paul says that it's no trouble for him to say these things and that it is safe for you. Joy in the Lord is related to strength and it's related to your safety. This is the language that we see throughout the Bible. Psalm 81 verse 1 says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Nehemiah 8.10 And he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Chronicles 16, 27, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his Place. When you rest in joy, you are strong. When you rest in the joy of the Lord, you are safe. In his semi serious and semi satirical article entitled, How to Stay Safe in the World Today, Mark Mooring gives five ways to stay alive. Number one, he writes, You want to stay alive? Avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. Number two, don't stay home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Number three, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Number four, avoid traveling by air, rail, or water because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. And of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals. Above all else, avoid hospitals. You will be pleased to learn, however, that only 0.001% of all deaths occur in worship services in church. (laughs) 
And these are usually related to previously, previous physical disorders. And therefore the logic tells us that the safest place for you to be at any given t- point in time is at church. Bible study is safe too. The percentage of deaths during Bible study is even less. For safety's sake, he concludes, attend church and read your Bible. It could save your life. <laughs> yeah, you, you get the humor, but the seriousness behind it as well, right? You are never more safe than when you are in the hands of God. You are never stronger in this world than when you rely on the strength of the one who can do anything and everything. And when you take joy in the Lord, it's an indication that you are his and he is yours. And in that place, you are safe. Knowing him, taking joy in him, finding safety in him, these themes all coalesce and are in some way related to each other. It sounds a lot like different pieces, not just of our experience, but of our identity. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Because verse two takes a decidedly different tone, doesn't it? Watch out for the dogs. The sharp contrast between a call to rejoice and a, and, a, and a sharp warning. It's a seemingly bizarre turn. It would be sort of like me saying to you something like, you guys, I had the best steak the other night. I mean, it was cooked perfect, medium, rare. It was well seasoned. It had a nice crust on the outside. It was amazing. And lima beans are terrible. <laughs> Two... Seemingly disconnected sentiments. Opposite tone. And it begs the question, what connects the two? And in this case, it's obvious, right? Steak and lima beans are both something that are edible. Well, barely. (laughs) Rejoice in the Lord. Watch out for the dogs. Two seemingly disconnected sentiments. Opposite tone. And it begs the question, what connects the two? And the answer has to do with the ideas of cleanliness before God. What it means to have the identity of his family. And how we get access to him. And so let's look at the description. Dogs in the ancient world weren't something that husbands and wives had to negotiate over for 20 years. Dogs weren't pets. They were considered filthy, low-life creatures who were scavengers, and they were ceremonially unclean. The image of calling these particular people dogs was full of bite because, as we'll see, he's connected that image to some strict Jews called the Judaizers who were trying to make the Gentiles clean 
when then they themselves were actually the ones who were making them unclean. These Jews weren't just dogs, he says. He says they're evildoers. And evildoers are people who work and deal in sin. They weren't just unclean. But according to Paul, they were unclean intentionally. And these Jews weren't just dogs. They were evildoers. And they weren't just evildoers. They were mutilators of the flesh, he says. Watch out for the mutilators, Paul says. And now we begin to get to the core of what's actually happening here. You see, the Judaizers were a group of Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. However, they still followed the Old Testament law and insisted that all the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, would do the same. In fact, you needed to become a practicing Jew before you could become a follower of Christ. At least that's what they said. And all practicing Jewish males had one thing in common. They were all circumcised. Of course, we know this side of salvation history, Jesus fulfilled the law of the Old Testament. He mediates a new covenant between God and humans. The terms of our relationship are related through him, not through the law, not through works, not through religious ritual. And thus the Judaizers were some of the earliest legalists that we see in the New Testament. And their legalism was through physical mutilation requiring circumcision. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators who say you can't be clean before God unless you're circumcised. You can't be part of God's family unless you're circumcised. You have no access to him unless you come through us. (laughs) And they were holding people back. You know, legalism has the same effect on people today. And I'm sure you've come across it at some point, or perhaps you're the one who struggles with it. Many of us do. This is when a person or people impose external requirements to be considered a Christian And in our context today, it often comes in the form of taking a biblical principle, something that's good, and then adding a layer around it, around the outside, and calling that layer of practice righteous or sinful, and imposing it upon other people in the way that the Bible never does. There's a a lot of ways that we could explore legalism, right? I mean... You know, some of the most obvious ones through history have been the consumption of alcohol, um, which the Bible doesn't prohibit, does prohibit drunkenness, but not consumption. And you've heard the old saying, you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with the girls who do. (laughs) And there's some wisdom there. (laughs) But that's legalism. 
How about eating certain foods? We see that issue in the New Testament. We see it today. And depending upon where you live and, and what you do, that issue might be more acute. The real Christians don't eat blank. The righteous ones avoid thus and such. Dressing a certain way, you go to different places. That we have our crew going to Kenya this week out in the middle of the bush, and it's amazing. If you've ever been to a third world country that's been founded in a church plant and you see tribal people who are wearing Western clothes to go to church, even though they never do the other days of the week. But the same happens here and has for years, right? If you don't wear a jacket and tie, you're somehow less Christian. If you wear a sweater and jeans, then, well, we, we don't know about his salvation, especially if there's rips in those jeans. Um, legalism is applied in a number of different directions, right? Certain races in different contexts, uh, adopting certain norms, especially in our culture today. If you live in the Pacific Northwest and you don't drive an electric car, whoo. But if you live in the South and don't drive a pickup truck, and if you live in Youngstown, Ohio, and don't drive something made by General Motors, <laughs> who knows where you stand with God? How about singing certain styles of music and not others? There's a lot of legalists here on this one. For years, there's been legalists on the side. If you don't sing the traditional hymns, then clearly you're not of the pure sort. Uh, there's also legalists on the other side of the issue. If you don't sing all the contemporary songs, well, then clearly you're of a substandard spiritual condition and you probably don't have the Holy Spirit. That's called legalism. One author goes on to write that legalism says God will love us if we change. And the gospel says God will change us because he loves us. David Wilkerson once said, at its heart, legalism is a desire to appear holy. It's trying to be justified before men and not God. And so what is Paul getting to here? Two conflicting ideas, praising God and avoiding the legalists, the mutilators, the dogs, the evildoers, all in the relationship of access to him. We might summarize it like this. Praise God that our access to him is given by Christ alone. <laughs> Praise God that our access to him is given by Jesus Christ alone. Paul says that legalism isn't the entry point or the requirement of those in God's family. So watch out for those who impose extra biblical requirements upon you. In fact, we see that just the opposite is true. Look at verse three and four with me. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible open. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are evidence of God's family who aren't legalists. We're evidence of it. 
How so? We are the circumcision, he says. Circumcision was the physical identity marker of God's people under the old covenant. Baby males were circumcised. For their whole lives, they bore the marker that they were part of the people of God, God's family. It was a source of identification for them. It was a source of, or or an identification of their trust or their parents' trust. And to some degree, possibly even faith. But the physical marker is no longer needed. And obedience to the law is no longer the obligation, not even circumcision. Long has God said that he cared more about the spiritual circumcision of people. The spiritual marker of their identity. He calls it even the circumcision of the heart. In Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, we see that Abraham had faith even before he was circumcised, and that faith was what brought him into a righteous standing with God. It wasn't the physical act of identification. Listen to what it says. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith. The faith that their father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Likewise, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25 says, The Lord will judge those who are only circumcised in the body. Meaning, there's a spiritual identification that needs to happen in the heart. And the point is this. Your standing before God and entrance into his family comes from no external action that you do. It comes through faith. It doesn't come through obedience. Obedience to God's commands come after faith and as a result of faith. And Paul gives us and them three reasons why this is so, why they can say, we are the marker. We are the identifier. We are the circumcision. He says, we are in God's family because, look at verse 3 and 4, we worship by the Spirit. When you receive new life in Christ, through the forgiveness of your sins, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of the Christian. The Spirit empowers us to truly worship God in an ongoing sense and rejoice in the Lord, like he says in verse 1. You know, sometimes I hear um, someone who looks at a church or looks at an event and hears some loud music and sees the low lighting and 
engages with people who are emotionally caught up in what they're singing and they might say something like, wow, the spirit is really present in the worship today. And that may be true or it may not be true, but emotional response is not the same as worshiping by the Spirit. Worshiping by the Spirit is when the Spirit of God produces an internal vibrancy for God in your soul. So much so that you wanna live for him You want your life to be defined by him. You want the expressions of your being to come out of that vibrancy. That's a marker of God's family. Paul gives a second marker. He says, we are in God's family because we glory in Christ. Opposite of taking recognition for accomplishment different than seeking recognition for our earned spiritual standing, contrary to any other reason that we could make much of and celebrate for entering God's family, there is only one, not two, not five, not 10. There is only one in whom we should glory, and that is Christ. Why can we come to God? Because Christ makes the way. Why can we be pure? Because Christ takes our sin away. Why can we enter into heaven? Because Christ purchases our life and gives us a new one. We glory in Christ. And if we do, we recognize that the third reason is that we are in God's family because we have no confidence in the flesh. I wanna please God with my life. I wanna please God with what I do in my life, but I know that it won't justify me before him. I'm still guilty of sin. I still need Christ. I wanna identify myself as a Christian, even with my body but that won't be the ultimate marker because we need a circumcision of the heart and that only comes through faith in Christ. I wanna be confident as I head toward my death that I will be with God someday and forever, but there is only one reason for my confidence. It's the work of Christ. It's been applied to me. You enter into a relationship with God through faith alone. And he gives you grace alone. And that all happens through Christ alone. Praise God that our access to him is given by Christ alone. Now let me pause right now before concluding. It's important for us to recognize that there's a stark difference here. And these differences come along multiple axes. The first one is that for some of us who may have grown up in a very legalistic upbringing 
or very, you might say, strict upbringing, that this will and should grate against the legalistic tendencies in which you were brought up. It does not mean that those legalistic tendencies or ideas had certain pure motives behind them. I'm not assigning motives to anybody. But your confidence is not in the fact that you are a religious person. It's not in the family you came from. It's not with what you've done in this life. Your confidence is in Christ and Christ alone. Conversely, some of us in in our congregation today grew up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, which has with it a variety of activities and religious rituals that depending upon which church you go to might be communicated to you as necessary for having favor with God. And what Paul is saying here is watch out because there's only one way for favor with God. There's only one source of our confidence. It's not in outward identity markers. It's through the inward transformation of the heart. This is why, friends, especially those of us who grew up in a Roman Catholic background, this is why the Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago, was along this very issue. It's important to know the difference. Praise God, friends, that we have access to him by Christ alone. Harry Ironside tells the story of Bishop John Taylor Smith, who was the former chaplain of the General British Arms. This was well over 100 years ago when he was preaching from John chapter 3, verse 7, when Jesus says, you must be born again. On one occasion, he told us that he was preaching in a large cathedral on this same text. And in order to drive it home, he said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for your new birth. You may be a member of a church, even the great church of which I am a member of the historic church of England, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The rector was sitting at my left, pointing to him. I said, you might be a clergyman like my friend the rector here and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And on my left sat the archdeacon in his stall and pointing directly at him, I said, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend in his stall and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he went on to tell us that day or day or so later that he received a letter from the archdeacon in which he wrote, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I had never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. Mine has been hard legal service. I did not know what was the matter with me, but when you pointed directly at me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment 
what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. He went on to say that he was wretched and miserable and had been unable to sleep all night and begged for a conference if the bishop could spare the time to speak with him. Of course I could spare the time, said Bishop Smith. And the next day we got together over the word of God and after some hours we were both on our knees and the archdeacon taking his place before God as a poor lost sinner and telling the Lord Jesus he would trust him and him alone as his savior. And from that moment, everything has been different. It was a striking example of the absolute necessity for new birth and of the sad possibility of being deceived with false profession and going on for years, not understanding one's true condition before God and how to access God in it. Friends, you can access God in your condition and it comes through Jesus Christ. Praise God, praise God that we can access him and you can access him even today through his son, Christ. Let's pray and praise him together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that there is no burden of physical performance to bear to reach you. We thank you that you give us joy in knowing you. We thank you that you keep us safe and make us strong because of who you are. I pray for my friends here today, men and women, boys and girls alike, any who live under the strain of a rule or a legalistic tendency that, that causes them to believe they might have favor with you. Release them today. Help them to see their savior afresh. Give them confidence in nothing else but him. And it is his name we rejoice. Amen.